one of my favorite recent gifts is a Garmin running watch. Uh, keeps me pretty motivated. Buzzes at me while I'm running about what my mile time is and keeps me motivated for the next one. I've, I've nearly killed myself a few times since I got this because I want to keep beating my last mile. And, uh, and interestingly, one of the things it does, I don't know if you've seen these, but it, it gives you like the constant heart rate and it'll tell you your stress level, which I'm not sure how this thing knows, but apparently it does. Uh, and then it'll also, it'll also keep measure of your body battery, how rested you are based off of your sleep and your workout routines and these sorts of things. Well, one of the recent developments at my house is that my kids love to play this game where they'll, one of them will hold my hand aside and they'll be looking at my heart rate, my stress, you know, these different things. And then one of them will start trying to say things to induce stress in me. <laughs> they'll be like, Dad, Joplin Campus is way over budget. You're not going to be able to figure out Joplin Campus. I was like, I'm like, how did you come up with that? But I think everything's fine. And the other one's sitting back here going, oh, yeah, Dad, you're getting stressed. You're getting stressed. They'll tell me different things about you're not ready for your next sermon, Dad. You need to do some more preparation. You're not ready. And I'm like, stop. It's, it's become one of their favorite things. And the crazy thing is, I don't know how, but literally it'll be like, you just went from 30 to 36, 46, 52, 56, Dad. You're really getting stressed. <laughs> they love it. And it's one of these things where it's, it's almost too much information, you know, that it, it, it's this constant feedback loop of what's going on. And, and, but honestly, I've enjoyed having the information. And one of the realizations that I've had in 2020, coming into 2021, trying to pay attention to where we are as a community is that it's not that easy like, I kind of wish I could just strap a Garmin around Seven Mile Road and get the immediate feedback of, like, where are we really after what the last year has been? You know, where are we at a heart level? I wish I could have the constant reading of, like, affection for God, discouragement, you know, depression and anxiety. Like, what is it that is working through the system? And it's, it's not always clear. I wish I could get a very clear pulse quickly. And sometimes it's not even clear to get it on my own heart because life is just so weird. You know, there's just days where you're like, I don't, where am I right now in response to the way that life has looked? That when so many things are stripped away, it's, it's challenging to make sense of where we are. And our staff and our elders went away in the fall to start do some, some strategic planning for 2021, which is just kind of a fool's errand in some ways. Like strategic planning when all of the variables are unknown. It's like trying to work an equation that has no answer. You're like, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be like in three or six or nine months. And so we went round and round trying to dream and pray and plan. And what we came back to was this realization that it's not always clear to take a pulse. It's not, it's not always easy. And it's not super clear what all the variables are and what's coming. But what we, what we came back to, which was so encouraging for our souls, and we want to invite you into, is this. that The seven-mile road that we set out to be on is as true and powerful and needed now as ever. 
Like the seven-mile road that emerges from Luke chapter 24 of journeying together truly in community and beholding Jesus truly in worship and spreading hope as, as mission, as our lives take shape around this mission that God is on, that now more than ever, those simple yet profound commitments are as important and as, dare I say, strategic as they've ever been. And so what we said is, there's so much we don't know, but what we want to do now more than ever is double down on the seven-mile road. We want to remind our hearts, and we, want to, we actually want to explore it in new and different ways and invite us as a community to dig in and to connect to the things that we say we're about, but in some ways COVID has kind of dulled us towards we want to re-engage and say, we're in in this season. Like all together, stacking our hands and going, we're in on this like we've never been in on this. Because we believe that if we are, we're going to experience some really profound and beautiful things. Because there's been a great shaking, and it's still going on. People's hearts are being exposed in new and real ways, and we want to be ready. We want to be the people of God, stirred up for the things of God, ready to, to offer hope and healing, and wholeness to the city around us. And so the invitation in January, what we're doing is we're re-engaging with the Seven Mile Road. And in the next three weeks, we're going to examine, starting next week, we're going to examine journey together, the idea of community, behold Jesus, the idea of worship and the way that it shapes our lives, and then, and then spread hope, the idea of mission. But before we, we press on any one of those three, we're going to focus in on the verse that was read for us because I think it's so critical and often overlooked that the disciples that were walking the, the seven-mile road, that when they got to this pivot point at the end of the road and they ran back, and this story that many of you have heard many times around here and we'll be exploring again, that that their hearts were burning within them as they were on the road. That's what they noticed. And one of the things we realized is that we could talk all about community and worship and mission. And we could say, yeah, that's right. We need to double down on that. We're going to do that. But if we are not a people with burning hearts, it's going to wear us out and it's not going to accomplish anything. And so we want to talk about the seven-mile road, but first what we want to talk about is what does it look like for us to be men and women with hearts that are on fire for the things of God? Like if we could strap the Garmin around your heart and say, ah, the temperature is high. Like it is hot for God. If we could get that real-time feedback, that's what we want to explore this morning. That's what I want to press in on together. That single verse that you heard read from Luke 24, verse 32 um, there they said, did our hearts not burn within us while we talked on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And so two simple things we're going to do. Two questions that we're going to explore. The first is this, why do our hearts need igniting? And you may be thinking, I don't, <laughs> I don't need to spend much time on that. I know why it needs igniting, but I want us to press in a little bit on this text and ask, why did their hearts, why did they know that they were burning as compared to before they were on the road, they weren't. Why did a heart need to be ignited? What was the state of it that needed, needed that fire? And then secondly, how then are our hearts lit ablaze? I want to explore that with, us, with you this morning. So the first question, why do our hearts need igniting? I, we're just going to be honest about this. I want to, I'm going to prove it to you from the text, but can I just be honest on the, on the front end? Sometimes the fire goes out. We know this, right? It feels like the coals have grown cold. 
It feels like this previous passion, like when we first saw Jesus and started to lean in, whatever that season was like for you, or maybe you're in it right now, so all you know is the warmth, right? But, but you look back and you go, ah, I remember those early days where all of a sudden it all seemed so electric. It felt like God was really speaking to me, like he was with me in my dorm room, or he was next to me and my wife in that sadness, or he showed up in the, in the face of that friend and my heart was warmed. But then there's, there's these seasons and these ways where life just causes, in a certain sense, us to end up in a ditch. Like we're no longer on the road. I'm in a ditch and I'm wondering how I ended up here. It's like we, we feel like um, everything has, has grown a little bit dull. In, in December, I was out in the, in the backyard with my, my wife and my boys and we were trying to build a fire, but we had wood that had been soaked through. And it was one of those things, we should have just cashed it in before we started, but I was like, no, this was the plan, we're going to do this. And so me and my boys working at it for a long time, and uh, we're working, we're working, and we'd get a little flame, a little flame, and that flame would produce a lot of smoke. Smoke in our eyes, and it's swirling because the, the wood's so wet, it's burning off. And so we got lots and lots of smoke and very little warmth. It just never really caught. And in some ways, it feels like for some of us, 2020 stripped you of relational norms, of vocational norms, of emotional norms. We felt in some ways disconnected and struggling to find our spot, many of us. Like, what is this? It feels like our wood got doused. You know, it's like, I'm trying so hard to keep the flame going, but I'm just getting a lot of smoke in my eyes and not a lot of warmth. And, and quite frankly, sometimes it just... It just feels that way. And that's exactly where these men were on the, on the Seven Mile Road. I want us to explore just real briefly the anatomy of a cold heart. What's happening in our hearts and the moments where it feels like it's all just soaked through and we start to go, I don't know if I'll ever feel the warmth of God's presence in the way that I did in that season back there. What's happening in a cold heart? Two things. The anatomy of a cold heart is two things. The first is this. It's a sad heart. It's a sad heart because of unmet expectations. If you look back in Luke chapter 24, earlier in the story in verse 21, there's these these two men that are on this journey, having heard that Jesus was crucified. They They had been hoping and walking with him, and now they're walking and they're sharing their journey together. In verse 21, they're they're talking to one another, and this is what they say. Or rather, they're saying to this third stranger that has started to walk with them, they say this, but we had hoped that he, referring to Jesus, was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it's now the third day since all of these things happened. So they're walking along and they're going, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Their expectations have been so unmet. They had been chasing along behind Jesus as his disciples, really counting on the fact that he was going to deliver. Now, what they were expecting him to deliver was immediate, full exploration and and kind of an expression of the power of the Messiah. They were thinking he's going to establish peace on earth. 
He's going to do away with the Romans. He's going to meet all of our needs. We're never going to be hungry again. We're never going to struggle. But we saw him. We saw him whisked away and pinned to a tree, bleeding and dying. All of our hopes in that moment went up in flames. They had expectations that have gone unmet. In many ways, they were expecting the concierge Jesus. You know, the concierge, ah, yes, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, right away. Would you like me to fluff your pillows with that? Would you like some chocolates on your pillow? What can I do to make life easier for you? I'm here to meet your needs. The concierge Jesus. They thought he was going to fulfill all of the triumphant passages of the Old Testament. And as a result, their expectations have gone unmet in this moment. And quite frankly, we all have those sorts of expectations that begin to be trumped up and where our expectations come in here and reality comes in here. There's this space. A mentor of mine calls it the tragic gap. He says the tragic gap is where we all live all the time between expectations and reality. And when we confront the tragic gap, we have to start asking the question, how are we going to fill that in? How are we going to make sense of the fact that, you know, I had really counted on the fact that um, by this point, I would be married. Like, I, I had this expectation that I would be married by this point, or that we would have kids by this point, or that my career would be here and not here, or that when my career did get here, it would feel like this, but it only feels like this. That at 25 and 35 and 45 and 55 and 65 and 75, whatever age you are, there's always this sense of, I kind of thought this stage was going to feel different than, than it does. I had snuck in all of these expectations of the way that I was going to be finally and fully fulfilled and met. And quite frankly, it just feels kind of tragic. And the struggle is that all of those typical many tragedies that we walk through have been heightened and explored and expanded over the last year. We're so painfully aware of them. Kind of like these guys. Walking on the road with shoulder stoops going, this is not the way I thought this whole thing was going to pan out. And into that space, we, we have a question of how we're going to fill the tragic gap, which brings us to the, the second component of the anatomy of a cold heart. It's not just unmet expectations that create some sadness. Because you and I both know people that have been through really tough circumstances, yet they continue to have fire. They continue to have hope. It's not just tough circumstances and unmet expectations. There's a second component and it's, it's true in these guys. It's true in us as well. The second is this. It's a slow heart. It's not just a sad heart. It's a, a slow heart. Look at Luke 24, verse 25 with me. This is Jesus' response to these men who are sharing about their unmet expectations. And he says to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Bradus cardia. I love it. Slow heart. He's looking at them and he's going, your pain and your sadness, the fire going out, all of this angst, it's linked to the fact that you have a slow heart. It's slow to believe. 
Like if the Jesus garment were strapped on, it would say, not beating quick enough. Not quickly falling in the line with what God has said to be true. He says, you haven't believed what the prophets have said. You know, we know that these disciples, just like many first century Jews, were really drawn to the triumphant passages. They loved to talk about the, the coming Messiah that would come with the power of King David, that would come with a sword and a hand, that was going to establish justice in the world, that he was going to have an everlasting kingdom and perfect peace. And they were going, yes! We want that Messiah. You know what they weren't meditating on and quoting and sharing with one another? He's going to be pierced for our transgressions. He's going to be marred beyond the semblance of humanity. He's going to be wounded and pierced, trampled. Like they weren't talking about that. If you look at rabbinic midrash in the first century, nobody was focusing on those passages going, that's the Messiah we're waiting for. They loved the triumphant passages and they kind of were slow to read and to believe all that the prophets had spoken. And quite frankly, I think part of the reason that we find ourselves sometimes where the fire has just gone out, it's not just that unmet expectations have generated sadness. It's that we're slow to believe what God has said to be true about those circumstances. Like if we were to really sit with God, I did this this week, I just want to share it briefly with you. I sat with the scriptures and I said, okay, God, what do you really have to say? What would you say about the pain and the struggle and the suffering of us as individuals, as us as a community, as us as a nation, of the places where there's just all of this tension and struggle? What would you say? He'd say maybe a lot more than this, but I think here's nine statements that God would say to your heart. And the this is one of the spaces where I think we're just slow to believe it, right? He would say, one, I'm not done working. I'm not done. Psalm 71, 20, I who made you see many troubles and calamities will revive you again. From the depths of the earth, I will bring you up again. He's not done. Two, I'm with you. I'm comforting you. Don't be afraid. He tells us, even in the valley of the shadow of death, I will be with you. I will comfort you. My rod and my staff will be your comfort. Rejoice. Ooh, this is where it gets tough. I'm just slow to believe. When he starts speaking the first word back to me in relationship to my troubles, I struggle when it starts with rejoice. I'm slow to believe these things. But he says, the third would be this, rejoice, this is shaping your character. Romans 5, we re he says, rejoice in your sufferings, knowing that suffering will produce endurance, endurance will produce character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put you to shame, because my love has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. He's going, rejoice, this is making you into the person you were, you were created to be. Four, rejoice. You are maturing right now, James 1, 2 through 4. It actually says that as this has its full effect, that we will be mature or perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Five, rejoice. Your mature faith glorifies my son. That's what God would say to us from 1 Peter 1. He would say this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved. 
Have some of you felt grieved in the last year? He said, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, rejoice because it's good for you. He says, rejoice because you're maturing and rejoice because your mature faith will bring glory to me one day. It will bring glory to my very son. Number six, he would say, take heart. My son has overcome the world. He's already overcome all the battles that you're facing. Seven, he would say, this pain will be overshadowed by future glory. In Romans 8 and verse 18, he says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with future glory. Romans 8, 28, number eight would say this, this pain is working for your good in ways that you can't fully comprehend. Number nine, and lastly, we could make this list go on and on because God has lots to say about your pain and your suffering, but he would say this, this pain is preparing you for eternal glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 17, so we do not lose heart. Though your outer self is wasting away, your inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, into the tragedy of the gap, God speaks. He has lots and lots to say, particularly at the point of the tragedy, particularly at the point where you feel like my my wood is drenched through and all I'm getting is smoke in the eyes. And he's going, listen, bradus cardia. Listen, slow heart. I have something to say there. But let's be honest, the struggle is often that too just feels like, I don't know, it feels distant. Some of that may be just what you needed to hear and you may feel like the fire starting back. Oh, God is speaking to me in the midst of unmet expectations. But as we explore how is the heart ignited, there, there's something else going on here. We understand, right? Why does a heart need igniting? It's because we are sad, dealing with unmet expectations, and we have slow hearts, slow to believe all that God has said to be true. How does a heart Find fire. Where does the fire of heaven ignite it? How does this work? Well, quite simply and profoundly and mysteriously, hearts are ignited by a divine opening. By a divine opening. Let me see if I can show this to you in the text. Back to Luke 24. I want to read verse 31 and 32 and verse 45 and pay particular attention to this word opening that we're going to have highlighted for you. It says this. This is at the end of the road. The men have been taught by Jesus all day long. They're sitting and he's breaking bread with them. And it says, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And then later in that same chapter, Jesus shows up in Jerusalem with the disciples, and as he's talking to them, it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That word opened is a really interesting term. It's, it's used eight ter- times in the New Testament, and there's a typical word for opening. Like if I were just to open the door for you, if, if you open a book, it would be anoigo. That's what it means to open. 
But then there's this emphatic word, dianoigo. It means to open through, to open permanently, to open thoroughly. Like this is opened up. It's only used eight times in the New Testament and three times is here in Luke 24. And it's God's activity to disciples that their hearts might burn. You see how involved God is at every turn uh, along this journey. He's the one who opens their eyes. He's the one who opens the scriptures to them. And then he's the one who opens their minds so that they can understand what their eyes saw in those scriptures that were open to them. He has to do it all, right? It's his opening. It's his work that he's doing. It is a divine touch, and it's beautiful, right, when we see it. Have you, ever, have you ever experienced this? Have you ever seen this where Jesus is involved? Like we can't make our hearts burn. And that's part of the desperation of this, isn't it? When you feel like things have grown cold and God feels distant, it's not like you can sit there and make it happen. There's no secret button to push or, or flip to switch. There's no dance that you do. There's nothing you, like, now I'm on fire again. And that can be part of the the desperation in it. But I hope this morning it's actually the encouragement. It's not by grit or by will, but it's a gracious and a divine touch of God. The reason that this month, like last week you got to hear from Peter as he was talking about the the call towards prayer and fasting and this idea that fasting is not about a religious performance for the praise of men, but it's this posturing towards the heart of God in the quiet place, in the secret place. It's a posture of, of hunger and openness saying, I need your touch. Like, I need you to, to meet with me. I don't need Jeremiah to preach to me. I don't need someone else to do something for me. I don't need my circumstances to change. I don't need everything to be okay. I just need you. And the idea of prayer and fasting is not that we're doing something religious to accomplish something. We're posturing ourselves before God and saying, you're the one who opens hearts and eyes and minds and opens the text to us. Come and feed us truly. Touch us, God. Transform us. We pray and we fast and we hunger, not because it's the secret button to push, but because we know that we need God to touch us. And when God begins to respond, when God moves, when God opens, he opens into this stunning, beautiful cycle You know, that first thing is that divine touch where it's like the the faint winds of the Spirit. You can almost hear them blowing at the distance. Some of you may be feeling this right now. It's like that, that moment where you haven't had a hunger for God recently, but all of a sudden you're like, you know, I, I kind of do. I want to start opening the scriptures. I want community. I'm leaning in in ways that I haven't in a long time. Listen, brothers and sisters, that's not because you're righteous or because you're wise or because you're good. When you begin to lean in, when there's hunger, when there's desire, when you decide to pick up the scriptures and start reading, listen, call it what it is. It's a divine opening. Romans tells us no one seeks God. No one in and of themselves, that when you have a desire, the very fact that you're here, you know, 
This is not for the faint of heart. We got like the wintry mix. Houston doesn't do this. You got your mask, you got RSVP, you got to make your way over and social distance. Like to be here, like it's already evidence. If you feel like all you've got is cold, wet wood, I say no. What you have is a divine opening. Hunger for the things of God that was put there by the Spirit of God. He's drawing you. He wants you and he wants all of you. He wants more and more to fill you and to refuel you. And I just want you to, before him, start by noticing the small things and blessing him for it and going, oh God, it's true. I want more of you. I'm praying like I haven't prayed in a long time or I'm willing to start going down this road and call it what it is and say, God, thank you for dianoigo, your opening, my eyes, my heart, my mind, the scriptures. You see, it starts there. And then as we begin to take up and read, he begins to open, the winds begin to blow, we begin to be drawn. Like these men, they begin to study with Jesus and they're actually paying attention to the text. Not just the text they've been focusing on, that they've been tempted to pray and to think about, but they're reading the whole of the text. They're going, oh, you have something to say about this. Like those texts I was just reading over you. It might be that some of those you start to meditate on and, and, and you start to focus on and you start to pray back to God and the text all of a sudden starts to become alive to us because it is alive and it's sharp and it's active and it's speaking. If you'll take up and read, it will speak to you. It will meet you in the quiet place and God himself is speaking to us through it that the text begins to be alive, that dianoigo, God begins to open. The text begins to speak and we understand our sin in ways that we never have. We go, oh God, in part, it hasn't just been that you've left me. I've been tempted to play victim and go, I don't know, God just seems so distant But all of a sudden we start to read and we go, oh God, I've been coddling my sin. I've been loving it and running it to it. And now I I see it in the text. I see myself exposed. I'm broken and realizing, God, forgive me. It's not that you've left me. I've left you. That when things got hard, I started to complain and to grumble and I was slow of heart to believe what you said is true and all I've been left with is, is this wet wood soaked not just by circumstances but my own disbelief. And here I am going, God, oh, would you forgive me? I see my sin. I see more clearly what's happening. And then we see him and his grandeur and his glory. And we go, oh, God, you're bigger and better than I thought. And listen, the beauty is this. When the word starts to speak, it doesn't just illumine those things because the word illumines the word. The word illumines the word. Jesus. We see him clearly. It was there at that point when the word had been opened to them, when their hearts began to burn, that they were seeing Jesus truly. And when the word illumines the word, our hearts on fire. Like to see Jesus and saying, your grace is sufficient to meet me in all of my brokenness, in all of my sadness, in all of my unmet expectation. You can can actually light me ablaze and warm me from the inside out. You, Jesus, are the one who came for me while I was running from you. 
You, Jesus, were the one that even in the tragedy of the gap, as you were flung into the tragedy of the gap on the cross, bleeding and dying, listen, by the eyes of faith, oh, that the Holy Spirit would right now open your eyes to see Jesus, to see him bleeding and dying after having lived perfectly, graciously, kindly, miraculously, and there he is bleeding and dying and yet is still quick to believe the text. He's quoting Psalm 22 in his moment of greatest unrest. He's still quick to believe. And in that moment, he bleeds and he dies and he's laid to rest. But when he is raised up again, he is raised with a different sort of hope for you and me. A hope that circumstances and death itself can no longer touch. He has readjusted our expectations. He has delivered us expectations that can't be touched by circumstances. He is the God that has conquered death and he will take us through pain and through suffering and through the veil of death itself into endless, perfect joy. He has secured a hope for us that no longer can be tainted by circumstances. And into that space, what he is delivering is not slow and sad hearts, but full and fast hearts. Hearts that are full of proper hope because we've seen him. And hearts that are fast to believe because we're going, you can do anything. You've conquered death. You fulfilled all of the prophecies. Your word is always true. So what do you have to say about my circumstances? These words no longer ring hollow and distant, but we go, yes, you're remaking me. It's going to be used for my good. It's preparing me for glory. Sign me up. And now, if we go on that journey of allowing the word to illumine the word and feeling our hearts ablaze, if we live in that place, we're going to get to spread hope to a world that is longing for it. Brothers and sisters, there has never, I don't know that any of us have ever had an opportunity in our lifetime like the one that is right now before the disciples of Jesus. Your friends and your coworkers, your neighbors, they're longing for hope. And it's hope that's only found in Jesus. As our hearts are reawakened and they're ablaze with him. We in 2021, I believe, I believe if we double down on the seven mile road, we say we're in. We're gonna get to see so many people come home, have their hope renewed. And you're gonna get to be their tour guide. You're gonna be walking with them and saying, oh, there's hope that this world can't touch. Come with me. And it starts with us having hearts on fire being set ablaze. And so, brothers and sisters, would you allow the word to illumine the word? Feel your heart set ablaze, and let's say yes all over again to the seven-mile road. Let's make 2021 a year where we look back. I really do believe, I think we're going to taste revival. But revival, the reviving, the coming alive, it starts in your heart and mine. It starts with us being reawakened and lit ablaze. Let's be hungry for the opening of God. And as we receive it, allow his word to illumine the word so that we would be on fire. Amen? We pray for us. God, I'm asking that right now, right now, 
in a miraculous and a marvelous way that none of us can control, none of us can manipulate, that right now you would, you would open. You would open hearts. Like men and women right now would feel hunger and a longing going, oh, I've never felt that, but I want it. And they would lean in and you would open for them the way as you open their eyes and you open the word and you open their minds that they would be lit ablaze, God. For those who've already said yes to Jesus and are on the journey, if that's you, would you just say, Jesus, I want a heart that burns within me in 2021. Like this year, my journey, I want to be someone that is aflame for you. We want to be men and women prepared and ready to worship you with all that we are so that we might be the sorts of people that can bring hope to the world around us. God, make it true. We, with open hands and open hearts, say, God, take us, use us, warm us. Even now as we come to your table, even now as we sing praises, and even now as we are sent out, I pray, God, that you would be a lighting of fire that no that, that, that nothing in this world could quench. We're begging it, God, for your glory, for, for our joy, for the hope of this city. Would you make it true?